You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 17th of July 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. They said they think it's Russia. I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. Russia is trying to undermine democracy itself to delegitimize democracy. And the point we are making here is we know they interfere with our elections and we have passed sanctions on Russia to hold them accountable. But what to believe? The statements of Donald Trump or all the evidence? My guests John Everard and Jacob Parakelos will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including an abrupt and peculiar change in tone by North Korea's state media, the UK's unwillingness to absorb that the world may keep turning without it, and is Sasha Baron Cohen's new programme about the United States making quite the point it thinks it's making? That's all coming up on the Dory House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Jacob Parakelis, Deputy Head of the US and the Americas Programme at Chatham House, and John Everard, former UK Ambassador to North Korea, among other postings. Welcome both. And we will start in the United States, to which President Donald Trump has returned to somewhat mixed reviews of yesterday's baffling performance in Helsinki, during which he very much insinuated that he preferred the word of the President of Russia over those of the United States' own intelligence services. A former head of one of those services, ex-CIA Director John O'Brennan, described Trump's actions as, quote, nothing short of treasonous, unquote, a reminder that this is a capital crime under US law, and even other usually reliably obsequious Trump shills were notably equivocal. Um, Jacob, first of all, my question is, every time Trump puts his foot in it to some or other degree, although even by his standards yesterday was spectacular, what else was anybody really expecting? This is the thing that surprises me about the commentary is the the number of people who pronounce themselves surprised by this. There's nothing in the way Trump has comported himself or talked about Russia or talked about his view of the U.S. election that should lead us to be surprised. I mean, shocked, yes, as as a a change from the uh, existing traditions of American uh, president, the American presidency, of a change in the traditions of how American presidents comport themselves while abroad and while dealing with. I think it's fair to say more or less hostile foreign leaders. Uh, it, it's certainly shocking, but none of this should be surprised. Any, anyone who subscribes to the at real Donald Trump Twitter feed has seen all of this rhetoric before and will see it again. So the, the idea that this is a shock, I think, or or a, both a shock and a surprise, I think, is not, not really credible. Um, John, if, if we assume that there is a, a spectrum at which one end Uh, We have Donald Trump, an actual knowing, witting agent of the Russian Federation, and at the other end, Donald Trump, just an empty-headed simpleton who has absolutely no idea what he's doing. Did yesterday move the needle between those possibilities at all? To be honest, no, it didn't. And I have to say that uh, if he were a, a fully paid-up agent of the Russian Federation, I would be aghast at the quality of agent of the Putin. <laughs> and I, I think Jacob's got it spot on. I mean, the, you know, we've heard all this before. What do we expect him to say? He's asked whether the Russians interfered in the election. That's to say, did Putin fix his victory? Yes, he's going to say, it was the Russians all along, Hillary should have won. Yes, does that sound true? 
It sounds not like something Donald Trump is likely to say. My point exactly. Can I also say I appear to be in a minority of one that compared to how that summit might have gone, I actually came out <laughs> relieved. Look at all the pluses. Yes, look, look at all the pluses. I mean, the guy says, yes, in fact, you know, uh, Putin's a great guy. I believe him rather than the intelligence community. It was uh, it doesn't go down well with me or I can see from your faces, either of you two. But he didn't sign across Syria, as far as we know. That was not in the news conference. Mm. Uh, Jacob is making an mm noise that suggests disagreement. Not disagreement exactly, but a qualification. Uh, because it's important not to conflate what Trump and Putin said in their joint presser, what Trump said to Sean Hannity afterwards, the commentary that's come out, and the fact that there was a two-hour one-on-one meeting with only translators in uh, attendance. We don't know what was said in that meeting. And while, as has been widely observed, it's almost certain that the meeting was recorded, not least by the Russian side, um, I think it may be some time, if we ever find out what was said, what was agreed in that meeting. So I just, I, I, I don't want to, I mean, and I actually agree, John, that the, the there's a degree to which there was the possibility coming out of this that Trump might sign off on some massive realignment. He didn't do that publicly. But we don't know what was said behind closed doors, and we don't know what was agreed. And there was a kind of a strange noise from the Russian general staff this afternoon saying that they would were stood ready to uh, institutionalize the agreement that Trump had made with Putin, which, of course, is one of the problems with having a one-on-one meeting because the other side can always say, oh, well, you agreed to this, and you can't really credibly... This is true. We we don't know what happened in that meeting. As we go to air, uh, Russian armour is not being sort of shipped across the Bering Strait to to return Alaska to the motherland uh, in exchange for a handful of magic beans. Although, to be honestly, I'm not, I'm not sure how I'd be how surprised I would be by that. My my own hunch, uh, John, about the two hour meeting is that it was probably two hours of Donald Trump talking about his electoral college victory while Vladimir Putin stabbed himself repeatedly in the leg with a fork uh, to try and stay awake. But uh, just for, speaking from your experience as a professional diplomat, how weird is it that such an encounter was actually allowed to take place? At such an encounter allowed to take place without notes, without any kind of record, that's weird. In terms of Trump's behaviour, sort of moderate weird. I mean, we've been here before. It's what Trump does. Uh, yes, it's quite possibly, I mean, something must have passed between them. They've spent two hours together. Uh, and it's possible that it was even worse than... Uh, Trump just just sounding off. I have a hunch that they'll have spent quite a lot of time uh, on Trump's new crusade to bring oil prices down before the midterms, in which, of course, Vladimir Putin has got quite a lot to deliver. That would be quite a sticky one for for Putin. Uh, He doesn't want oil prices to go any lower than they are because that trashes the Russian economy. Um, And, you know, if they have reached some kind of agreement on that, that would be interesting. Interesting that uh, we are now getting on for 24 hours after the summit and nothing has leaked out of the White House yet. If there was any kind of agreement, and I I recognise what you say, Jacob, uh, it's been kept quiet so far. Uh, Jacob, looking at this from the point of view of American domestic politics, this is a question which has been asked several billion times, several million of those by me to you, I should think. But is this the point at which the Republican Party finally goes, okay, this is, we can't do this anymore? There has been some uh, grumbling from normally uh, quiescent quarters, Newt Gingrich, uh, for example, not all of Fox News's coverage has been uh, slavishly uh, praising of Trump. And and there's been a bit more amplified grumbling from some of the usual suspects, I guess, uh, Bob Corker, Jeff Flake, John McCain, and so forth, although their they're grumbling before has stopped noticeably short of actually doing anything about it. Are we getting anywhere nearer 
a tipping point in that regard? Or is this just a thing where Republicans realise that, unfortunately, they are beholden to Trump's base to keep their jobs? I think the fundamental answer to that question won't be known until November because this is at the at its heart a political question. Are Republican elected representatives more afraid of their own base uh, who by and large love Trump or are they afraid of losing their jobs to a Democrat in an election? Because if the answer is B, if they're more afraid of the Democrats, then yes, it's a tipping point. But we won't know that until we see whether the Democrats actually manage to realize significant gains against the Republicans in the midterm elections. Okay, well, let's move on somewhat and look at another recent recipient of Donald Trump's diplomatic outreach, North Korea, the state media of which appears to be experimenting with a different tone. Normally, North Korean media can be relied upon to provide blanket coverage of Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un beaming ecstatically at tractor factories and so forth. However, recent coverage of Kim's visits to a number of sites in North Hamyong province chronicled his discontent with unfinished projects, sloppy management and insufficiently clean bathrooms. Um, John, someone in North Hamyong is having a really bad day, right? Possibly, uh, or possibly this was staged and they knew it was coming and they'd all been told to sort of stand around and look duly abject and humiliated. Uh, it's interesting that this wasn't one visit. He went around, I think it was four separate units, uh, an unfinished hotel, uh, a bag factory, as the North Koreans call it, actually a, a satchel factory for, for, for school kids, uh, and also the, the famous leisure facility. Um, and in each of them, he was harsh on the authorities. This is Kim Jong-un signalling to the outside world and to North Koreans that he's serious about getting the economy moving and that officials put in charge of economic projects have to take them seriously and have to make them work. So just to follow that up, John, this strikes you as a signal to the outside world? Uh, to both, yes. To the outside world that he's focusing on the economy, that's to say he's more interested in that than building further nuclear bombs, which is a questionable prospect, but there. And also to his own audience. He knows that there's a craving in North Korea for better economic conditions, for a higher standard of living, and he's trying to signal that he's striving to produce that. Uh, Jacob, how would this be perceived from an American point of view? Uh, Trump obviously likes the idea for whatever reason of being friends with Kim Jong-un and being friends with North Korea. But is, is there likely to be parallel enthusiasm for that in the, in the State Department? No, I don't think there's a lot of enthusiasm for uh, softening the U.S. stance on North Korea. I mean, there's a fundamental problem here, which is that Trump clearly considers North Korea a solved issue. He thinks that Kim Jong-un has agreed to denuclearize. He thinks that a any day now a cargo plane full of the disassembled remnants of the entire North Korean nuclear program is going to land in front of the TV cameras at Edwards Air Force Base and he'll be able to make a speech. That's obviously not going to happen. The North Koreans didn't sign anything that committed them to denuclearization in any way. But he is not going to focus the efforts to the extent that the executive, the, the, the office of the president can focus the efforts of the subsidiary agencies. He is not going to put any impetus on them to uh, bring that into being because he considers this resolved. Whereas the State Department, the actual subject matter experts, the Defense Department, on the one hand, are going to continue to see this North Korea as a threat. On the other hand, as long as North Korea is focusing inwardly, the the fact of their nuclear weapons and the fact of their delivery systems is established. And to a certain way of thinking, I think to a, a rational way of thinking, the fact that we're not amping up tensions and being prepared to go to war is probably a good thing. Uh, John, to, re to return to these, uh, these news stories, and 
I, I guess I want to ask, you'd be one of very few people who would understand, have some understanding of how they would be seen domestically by North Koreans. North Koreans, of course, who consume North Korea's media like they've got any other choice, would be accustomed to those pictures of Kim Jong-un looking very happy, pointing at things, uh, talking about how everything's marvellous, everything North Korea does is fantastic, we're doing a better job than anybody ever possibly could. How weird is it going to see to them if they pick up their morning copy of Rodong Sinmun or whatever else and see... Kim Jong-un pointing at things, scowling crossly and saying, this is terrible, this is rubbish, this isn't good enough. It will be a jolt. Uh, They haven't seen this before, and they certainly haven't seen it in glorious technicolour across especially expanded edition of Roden Shinmun. It's quite clear that their leader is telling them something and telling telling Cadre something, uh, that economic performance is now a prime uh, target, and it has to be taken seriously. But how, how would you absorb that in your own life if you are a North Korean? Something has shifted, but... Is it difficult if you are a North Korean to discern what you're supposed to infer from this? Because obviously, I'm guessing a thing people don't want to do uh, is misinterpret uh, the wishes of the leadership. Absolutely right. Uh, How will it be uh, uh, taken? I I think that the message actually was quite clear. uh, Clean the bathroom, for starters. Clean the bathroom, for starters. You're always a good piece of advice. Uh, If you are involved in any kind of economic work, watch it. The leader is breathing down your neck. Do not cut corners, make sure everything is done properly. And also uh, that it's okay now to talk about things not going well. Uh, As you said at the beginning of your remarks, uh, up until now, when he's visited special units, uh, he's stood beaming and told them that they're doing a great, great job. If the leader can say that the was it that the, the, the hot tubs are, are look like fish tanks? Then, then so can you. You can follow that that model. Uh, Jacob, is there a general shift uh, in tone, not just from North Korea's media, but from North Korea since the Trump summit? Are the North Koreans trying to adjust? I guess in the same way that various proprietors of hot tubs in North Korea might now be trying to adjust to the different expectations of the leader, is North Korea trying to adjust to different expectations of the outside? world. Well, my my read is that they consider in the same way that Trump considers North Korea a settled issue, it looks like the North Koreans consider the US to be if not a settled issue, then certainly uh, a, an enemy, an adversary that's been placated for the time being, that they have space now to focus on relatively pedestrian matters of production and consumer goods and opening reopening trade opportunities with their neighbors because Trump threatening his the use of his large and functional nuclear button is <laughs> receding into the rearview mirror. He's declared the thing over. For the moment, everyone's disparate views of what was actually agreed in Singapore seem to be largely acceptable because, frankly, at the end of the day, no one really wants to go to war. It would be spectacularly devastating. It works for the U.S., it works for China, it works for South Korea, it works for North Korea. In the long term, I don't know that that's a manageable status quo because eventually there will be U.S. leadership which does not simply declare victory and move on. Um, and I think that that's where the problem lies. It's not that uh, right now there's a crisis. I think it's fair to say the crisis has been averted, but at what cost in the long-term stability of the strategic relationships? So, John, would North Korea, as far as it's possible to tell, which is always the, the key rider where North Korea is concerned, would they be regarding themselves... Uh, 
if you look at the way their relationship with the United States and the outside world has shifted in recent months, would they regard themselves as at the beginning of a process or having ridden out a storm and now able to return to business as usual? Both. They clearly have ridden out a storm. As Jacob's just said, quite rightly, the prospect of military action by the United States has receded. Also, they've ridden out an economic storm. The sanctions regime uh, carefully piled up against them over a period of several years is starting to crumble. So from that point of view, they're in a good place. But at the same time, this, they have said very clearly, is the start of a process, the kind of the big bang agreement that uh, the, some Americans were hoping would happen in Singapore clearly hasn't happened. And the North Koreans have said, no, this will go forward step by step. It'll take some time. And only at the end of this, cough, cough, do we hand across our nuclear weapons. So a bit of both. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with John Everard and Jacob Parakilis. Coming up next, a British comedian makes a mockery of US politicians and British politicians make mockeries of themselves. The pendulum is a swinging, and these days it's the city of Paris that's turning heads with retail innovation. Monocle Films travelled to the 16th arrondissement to sample Le Beau Marché's new addition to La Grande Épicerie family. Food is a lot of memory. It's memory with your mother, with your grandmother. Food is uh, and a pleasure. You have to find this uh, game with a product. I try in the architecture to have this sensibility. For a filmic tour of La Grande Épicerie Rive Droite, head to monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Jacob Parakilis and John Everard. Now, almost as if it is trying to make a point to a country very near here, the EU has concluded one of the biggest free trade deals ever signed with Japan. It covers nearly a third of global GDP. In a contrast, which is probably much funnier to people not trying to do business in or with Britain, the UK's Electoral Commission has announced that the official Brexit campaign group Vote Leave broke electoral law. They have been fined £61,000 and referred to the police. Also, what currently passes for Britain's government has argued itself into such knots that any claims by anyone to know what in the wide world of sports is actually going on have to be regarded with extreme suspicion. Um, we will come to that shortly. Uh, John, first of all, the Japan deal, it is is—it is almost parodically, is it not, exactly the kind of thing that leaving the EU was going to enable? Well, that's right. So said some people. Uh, Though, of course, if the UK had attempted to negotiate a deal covering these kind of areas with Japan, they wouldn't have got anything remotely as good. This is not just a a big deal in the sense that it covers so much of the world's GDP. It is a humdinger. Um, It takes down, I think it's 90-something percent of tariffs. Uh, 99 percent, I believe. 99 percent. There you go. Makes you wonder about what they've kept tariffs on. That's got to be some niche product. Absolutely. The one percent. I wonder what it is. But, I mean, effectively, it allows uh, gradually freeing of food exports from the EU into Japan, uh, services well provided for, uh, heavy machinery, Japanese infrastructure now open to EU competition. It's a very, very big deal. In return, the Japanese find that the 10% tariff on their cars coming into the EU uh, gradually vanishes to, to, to zero over a period of time. If the UK tried to negotiate anything 
anything like that, uh, you you just wouldn't get the kind of reciprocity that the Japanese have been happy to give to the EU. Uh, Jacob, is this the kind of thing that it is likely to prompt a stampede out of the United Kingdom to the rest of Europe by Japanese car manufacturers, for example, many of which, uh, Sunderland being probably the most famous instance with its big Nissan plant, are of course situated in heavily leave voting constituencies? I don't know if this will be the straw that broke the camel's back, but there are a lot of straws piled on this particular camel, not least the <laughs> fact that we are now less than 10 months away from the, the from D-Day, from March 31st, 2019, when the UK will leave the EU one way or another, unless some uh, extension is agreed. And there seems to be no clarity whatsoever on whether there'll be a hard border in Northern Ireland, whether the UK will be part of the customs union, whether it'll be have access to the single market, whether it'll be on WTO rules. Those, I think, are the things which are prompting companies to begin to, if not stampede, then at least nervously shuffle towards the exits. Uh, having said, John, in the introduction that I don't believe at this point that anybody actually understands what is going on with Brexit and therefore uh, issued you both with something of a challenge, I am going to ask you, um, does the last, let's boil it down to the last 48 hours, uh, given that every day now seems like a year in British politics, does, do you have any comprehension at all of where we are or what's actually happening at this point? Yes, stalemate, logjam. Uh, the government has effectively ceased to function over Brexit. I mean, other government areas tend to sort of chug along. Essentially, Theresa May got her great uh, checkers agreement, got all kinds of people, including famously Boris Johnson and Davis Davis, to sign off on it, uh, who then disappeared off into the wilderness. And ever since then, uh, the rats have been nibbling away at bits of it. Uh, the current crisis was precipitated by the European Research Group, uh, who tabled amendments which would effectively have, have, have neutered the, the, the agreement and which of course then produced fury from the many Tories who believe that the UK should never leave the, the EU in the first place. Uh, at the moment also it seems that Theresa May is unable to reach any kind of compromise agreement between the two. There is no common ground. Uh, so the government is unable to produce a negotiating position uh, to enter talks with the European Union. As Jacob said, 10 months away, this is a complete shambles. Uh, and even if we did somehow miraculously uh, cobble together an agreed position, put it to the European Union tomorrow, we'd have only the faintest of chances of reaching a deal by the deadline. Uh, Jacob, that finding against the Vote Leave campaign that they, they broke electoral law, and this isn't just a matter of sort of having transgressed a few you know, regulations we should make clear. It is breaking the law uh, and the police are now looking into it. There, there have been some more sort of fervent uh, pro-Remain voices suggesting that this now invalidates the entire referendum, which I think is is possibly a bit of a stretch. But, but does it shift... I guess, the political discourse at all towards the idea of perhaps some sort of second referendum, assuming such a thing is logistically possible, which is far from clear in itself. Well, the funny thing about political discourses, and that's true in this country as it is in the US and any other semi-functioning democracy, is that they only shift when the participants in the discourse agree for them to shift. And what I haven't seen is a pickup, and, and it's early days, but I haven't seen a lot of pickup by the of the finding of the Electoral Commission outside of the sort of hashtag FBPE, uh, you know, very ardently pro-Remain, people who started agitating for a second referendum the instant the first one concluded and, mm -hmm. and went for leave. So, uh, you know, th there may be an argument for it. Uh, but I think the problem is that in such a polarized, log-jammed political environment, if, 
it only has the kind of force that the the participants in the discourse allow it to. And I think we're a long way from this really shifting views. I mean, the 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 uh, line on whether the public opinion line on whether it was right or wrong to leave has gone from a couple of points pro-right to a couple of points pro-wrong, but it's still essentially within the margin of error. There's no massive shift of opinion. Okay. Well, I, th- I think it is just about possible that over coming days, weeks, months, years, decades, the terms of our natural lives, we might have more opportunity to discuss Brexit. So we will move along uh, finally tonight to a television program which aims to trick American politicians into making incredibly idiotic comments into television cameras. Things being as they are, this might seem quite the exercise in redundancy, but Sasha Baron Cohen has made it anyway. Who is America, which has premiered on both sides of the Atlantic over the last few days, revisits Baron Cohen's Ali G slash Borat slash Bruno Stick of bogus interviews. The first episode saw several US Congress folk enthusiastically endorsing a plan to equip toddlers with automatic weapons. Let's hear a clip. This year, in our state government, they had a bill put in that would have made it illegal for someone four years old to 12 years old to have access to a gun. Uh, we, we, killed, we, we killed the bill. They tried to stop four-year-old children from having access to guns? Yes, yes. What is the logic that these people come up with? They just think that children uh, can't handle them. We want three-year-olds who are real experts at what they're doing, not three-year-olds who are reckless. Yeah. Um, Jacob, first of all, uh, the statements that were made about guns by the uh, politicians who were gold in that segment, were they noticeably stupider than anything they'd said on the subject before? Not really, honestly. I, th- I mean, the one of the reasons why... I think to some degree that the reaction to this is a little bit overblown in a way is that really the absurdity of the gun debate was already at such a fever pitch that this is just a half dial higher. I mean, you have, uh, you know, my my favorite being the suggestion that concert goers in Las Vegas at the shooting last year should have returned fire at a gunman 400 meters away in a 75 meter elevated position firing down with fully automatic weapons. With what? What are concert goers supposed to carry that will allow them to return <laughs> Barrett M82 50 caliber sniper rifles? A control pad for a Predator drone? I mean, the, the absurdity of this conversation is already so extreme that Sasha Baron Cohen, who, when he's on, and from what I've seen of the show, he's very much on in a way that he hasn't been for some years, um, can't even really push the absurdity that far, that, that much farther. That's where we are at the moment. It, it is... It is. It is spectacular, or the, the spectacular parts of it are spectacular. The thing I wondered, John, about the parts that do not involve uh, him talking to uh, gun-happy Congress folk, it's a thing that has occurred to me before with his, his, his films, especially Borat, that I'm not always sure he ends up making the point he thinks he's making. Very often, uh, they, they come across as incredible advertisements for American hospitality and courtesy. People will... He has to push people to absolutely extraordinary lengths uh, to get a reaction other than courtesy and politeness from them, by which I mean lengths far past the point that if he tried to make this either here in the United Kingdom or in my own country, Australia, somebody would have put him into hospital. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I think uh, you know, watching some of this footage, it, it, it's cringe-making, not only because of what the people end up saying, but because of what he has to do to get them there. And you, know, you, you do get the sense that in some of these cases, I don't know not to, what the percentage would be, you, you, he is actually twisting 
people who may, in their own terms, actually be halfway decent and probably wouldn't come See, out I, of these I, I do think yeah. a lot yeah. of the time they're just being polite. They're, yeah. they're just, they're, they're, there's a section in that first episode where he plays the part of a, a stereotypical uh, drippy ponytailed uh, Democrat who believes in every sort of new age happy clappy nonsense going and tries to outrage a, a conservative couple and they're just basically nothing but nice to him. Yeah, yeah and I think that, you know, there there is a, there's an element of that. I mean, he's Cohen is always at his best when he punches up. And I think a lot of the what he struggled with in the sort of post-Ali G period was punching down, finding people who were just fundamentally, you know, maybe a little bit weird, maybe a little bit sort of awkward in some ways, but basically were normal people. And, and you know, I think he may have needed the time in the wilderness between The Dictator, which was, let's be honest, a bad movie. It was really and, bad. And now um, to kind of recede from public consciousness and recover that proper satirical sense of you find people like, you know, the head of Gun Owners of America, Dick Cheney, uh, you know, the, 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 the people who actually either had or have fairly significant political power and you make fun of them. You don't just find ordinary people who, you know, might have a slightly absurd belief according to the set who watch Sasha Baron Cohen stuff and just kind of push them. I, I do want to... It's, it's a technique that's all, that, that, that sticks in my craw, not least because I've been subjected to it so often by hostile uh, media outlets you know, working for rather nasty governments. You, you find an ambassador, put him on the spot, you're very polite, and you wind him up and wind him up and wind him up until finally he <laughs> says something on air that you can then use to show that your government was right all along. It's the same technique. And I, you know, I'm not comfortable with it. Uh, just finally and very quickly, Jacob, I, I did want to try a pet theory that it, it may strike many people as incredible that people don't see through Baron Cohen's characters straight away. Uh, I get the, I get, I got the sense from the first episode that Bernie Sanders realised something was up, but he wasn't quite sure what. Is there something in there about how uh, Americans have got so used to people distorted by cosmetic surgery that they're perfectly willing to accept that this is just what that person looks like? I don't know about that. I think that goes more to the general politeness of this guy's a bit this guy might be a bit weird but i'm not going to you know shut them out because of that okay well this does bring us to the end of today's show john everard and jacob parakilis thanks both very much for joining us it was produced and studio managed by bill luti researched by fernando augusto pacheco and paula schultzer more music next at 1900 monocle on design with josh fennett i'm back with more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200 midori house returns at the same time tomorrow 1800 london time i'm andrew muller thanks for listening